0: We're looking at Jesus' teaching. It's called the Olivet Discourse. Very powerful teaching. Jesus, we're going to see, is going to finish that teaching this morning. In Luke chapter 21, we have traveled as far as verse 34, where we read Jesus say to his disciples and to us, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness, And the cares of this life and that day come upon you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore, verse 36, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. Jesus talking to his disciples, as you recall, in his last full day of ministry, there they are at the temple proper. And the disciples are pointing out the temple to Jesus, the beautiful stones, the huge stones, ornate stones. Of course, the second temple that Herod had remodeled became one of the wonders of the world as far as buildings, overlaid with gold, white marble used, absolutely incredible place. And as the disciples are saying, look at this beautiful temple, this beautiful place, Jesus would stun them by saying that the time's gonna come where not one stone is going to be left upon another. And he would leave the temple proper, go up to the Mount of Olives, which is just directly east of where the temple was, overlooking the temple. And the disciples that evening would come to Jesus and ask him, when is this going to be? That is the destruction of the magnificent temple. Of course, Jesus talked about that specifically as we read in verses 20 through 24. And thinking that, If this temple is going to be destroyed, it must be the end of the age. It must be your coming. What are the signs of the end of the age? And what is the signs of your coming? And Jesus, before this time, has already told them that he would return. He is now only hours from going to the cross at this time. Where he will die, be buried, and rise again. Ascend to the right hand of the Father. And he's telling them and us once again... That he is going to return. Verse 27. That they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. He told the parable of the fig tree and all the trees. When you see it's budding. Then know that summer is near. And when you see these things happening. Know that the kingdom of God is near. As he would say that. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will no means pass away. What he is saying in that is these things are going to be fulfilled. Even as we read in verse 36, he said these things will come to pass. In Isaiah chapter 2, as we began to read that chapter on Wednesday night, that it is Isaiah that had a vision for the latter days, and these things will come to pass is what Isaiah writes inspired by the Spirit of God. And he writes about the reign of Jesus Christ in chapter 2, in the day of the Lord. And here is Jesus saying the same thing, that these things are going to come to pass. Heaven and earth will, but every dot and tittle of my word is going to be fulfilled. It is unbelievers or carnal people that think, as Second Peter tells us, that things continue as they were. Where's the coming of, you know, the Lord you know, things continue as they always have been. Well, I want to remind you that as we've been going over this teaching, as Jesus has talked about the signs of the end, that they are liking the birth pangs, that the things that we're seeing around this that are taking place, it's all headed somewhere. It is all headed to where as the birth pangs, as they increase in frequency and intensity, that we know that the kingdom of God is going to be birth. Things don't continue as they always have. My words will pass away, not pass away. Heaven and earth will, but not my words. And as we wrap up this discourse, Jesus gives us a very important exhortation in light of the return of our Lord, how we should live. As 2 Peter chapter 3, as he's writing about the return of the Lord, the apostle writes, What manner of persons ought you to be in godly conduct and godliness? Jesus here puts some very specific things in front of us and how we should conduct ourselves in the light of his coming. He, in this exhortation, also gives us a warning. But before he gives us that warning, he says, let's read it again in verse 34, take heed to yourselves. The language is a present imperative. In other words, you must take heed to yourselves. He is not saying, well, here's a suggestion. Or, I think this is a good idea. Or maybe you want to do this, you know, if you want to. No. He is saying you must continually be taking heed to yourselves. He is not saying take heed to yourselves in that. What it means is you focus on self. That everything you do is about self. That life is centered around self. But rather what he is saying is pay special, careful attention to yourselves spiritually be alert, be awake, be sober, be watching, as we see in other places in the New Testament concerning the Lord's return and what a response to it is. And the warning is given that if we do not constantly and continually take heed to yourselves, there is a dullness that's going to take place in your life. Verse 34 again, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you unexpectedly. Take heed to yourselves. Pay attention. And by the way, that's what we are to do daily as Christians. That's the way that we are to live. Paul, when he was writing to young Timothy, he said, Timothy, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. That is, you continue on in the truth of God's word. You be an example to the believers in word and in conduct, in love in spirit in purity and in faith. Paul, when he was addressing the Ephesian elders there in Acts chapter 20, he would say to them, Therefore, you take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. And I know for me, that's an exhortation given to me as an overseer, that it's important that as I shepherd the flock of God, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That I need to be taking heed to myself spiritually. That I need to continue growing in my relationship with him, knowing him, being sensitive to his leading, being dependent upon him. Listen, you want to be a godly influence to those who are linked to you in your life? Then the exhortation is given. Take heed to yourself. You want to be a godly influence to your wife, husband, and to your kids, dad, as the priest of your home? Then take heed to yourself spiritually. Moms, you want to be that influence to your kids in a godly way as you are raising them, knowing that they are the future of the church, the future of this world. Then take heed to yourself spiritually. You want to have that influence. Then what we are to do is make sure that we are paying attention and watching and doing those things to stay close to the Lord, to learn of Him and to walk with Him. You see, a problem can be one of the problems is we want to take heed to other people. We live in a culture that we love to talk about other people. We like to point them out. There are shortcomings. You know, give focus on them. They're so carnal. I don't like them. You know, I'm glad I'm not you know uh, having the struggles that they have you know we think that we got the advice for everybody else and we forget about that we need to be yes a blessing to other people and give correction but we are to also make sure that before you do that you're you're taking heed to yourself and in light of my return the first exhortation is take heat to yourselves less and now he says this is something i don't want to have happen in your life, in your spiritual life, it's a warning, lest your hearts be weighed down. He isn't talking about our hearts beating in our chest. He's speaking of the deepest resources of our very being, the real you, the real me. You know, not just your intellect, but the deepest part of you. Beware lest you have your hearts be weighed down. The King James uses the word overcharge. It's the only time that it's used in the New Testament. The word has the meaning of laden down, burdened down, new King James, weighed down. And might ring a bell with you who are here on Wednesday nights as we see in chapter one of Isaiah that when he begins to give that indictment from God on God's people, that you are a people that are weighed down with iniquity. And that's what sin and carnality does. It weighs you down. It doesn't free you. Some people think I'll just live any way that I want. I'm going to live after the world. Do what I want. You're going to be weighed down with iniquity. It's going to be like a huge weight that's going to crush you over time. And here Jesus is giving that warning to us. As he says, take heed to yourself spiritually, constantly, continually, a present imperative, you must be doing this. And then, as you do, And promises that are coming and benefit and blessing that he will say. But if we don't do, then you will have a hardness of heart of the things of the Lord and towards the Lord. Being weighed down speaks of being desensitized. You see, people, and we as Christians listen, that we can see all the things that are going on around us and we become desensitized to it. The sin that is plaguing our culture, the acceptance of sin. But also, as we see what's taking place in our world, and Jesus rebuked the religious leaders because they didn't have discernment. They became dull. They didn't take heed to themselves. They were only focused on themselves. And he said, you can discern the weather, the face of the sky, but you can't discern the coming of the Son of Man. We see the signs, the birth pangs that are all around us and the storm clouds that are gathering. And and we look at it and we think, well... You know, things are just going to continue. We don't need to think about and and, you know, focus on the Lord coming and and his return. And we don't need to be sensitive to it. Yes, we do. Don't be dull to it. Are we on the brink of nuclear war with North Korea? Because even as last week we talked about the perplexity of nations with distress That it means that the world, the nations of the world, are going to be facing things. These are birth pangs. It's going to get worse and worse until the one comes along who's going to seem to be the answer to the world's problems, the one called the Antichrist. But there's going to be perplexity of nations with distress, problems, no way out. We're facing threats from North Korea to detonate a hydrogen bomb in the Pacific Ocean to bomb Hawaii and Guam in the mainland just this week. And I hear people say, ah, it won't happen. He's just, they're just shooting their mouths off and all of this. Really? Can you be certain? Are we that secure? Are we ones that we think it won't happen just as in the Old Testament time in the first temple period, even in this period that Jesus is speaking, that they said nothing's going to happen to us? You know, we have the temple. We're God's people. And they put their security in those things rather than in the Lord. You think that there's nothing to worry about. Talk to the people in Hawaii that the civil authorities are getting them ready and prepared in case of a nuclear attack in Guam. That's never happened in our history before. Not since the Cuban Missile Crisis of the early 60s. We have seen even yesterday... That buried underneath all that news that Iran has tested a new missile, a medium range, you know, ballistic missile that can put multiple warheads on it. And they're working with North Korea. You know that they're getting that missile technology able to hit Israel, Western Europe. You don't think that's a problem when they have a theology of the caliphate? That we're going to destroy the little Satan and the great Satan. And we're going to usher in the Islamic Mahdi. That's driving their foreign policy. We become dull to those things. We stop watching. We stop paying attention. I don't know what tomorrow holds. But I do know who holds tomorrow. I don't know when the Lord's going to come back. We don't know the day or the hour. But I know that one day he is going to come back. He promised to. And as Jesus is saying, take heed to yourself spiritually. You know... Lest you be weighed down. The word doesn't just mean you do it. This is what happens to you if you're not taking heed to yourself spiritually. And I think that most of us know that to be true. That's why there's very practical things for us to be consistent in every single day so that dullness doesn't take over our hearts. Devotions. I pray that you are reading your Bibles every single day. That you're having a devotion time. Even you guys that are young, you are old enough when you're, you know, in high school. We tell the middle schoolers this. We even tell the kids to pray every day in the children's ministry, to have your devotions, to be praying every day, to be worshiping the Lord in your heart. Even when you're going through trials and difficulties to remain in fellowship with a group of believers, because we need each other. We need to exhort each other and encourage each other and love one another because it's brutal out there. To be serving the Lord. And you and I can be overtaken, laid down with, as Jesus said, carousing. It might be translated, dissipation, which means to be full, overindulged. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18: Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. We become dull spiritually. We start to fill our minds with worldliness and self-indulgence, to be excessive with worldly pleasure. It's all around us, and that's the message of Madison Avenue. That's the message of our culture and the world. The self-indulgence, live for yourself, you know, worldliness. Jesus said, be careful that you get weighed down with that. Be careful that you get weighed down with drunkenness. Listen, hear my heart on this. If you want to have a glass of wine with your wife or friends, that's your business. That's between you and the Lord. I'm not here to condemn you or to judge you in any way. But I will tell you this. I know that for me, 1 Timothy chapter 3 tells me as an overseer, I am not to be given to wine. And and that's a commandment given to me. So I will not be given over to wine. But one out of every 14 people in our nation that takes a drink ends up being an alcoholic. If you knew that one out of every 14 people would get cancer from something, would you do it? 50,000 Americans are killed every year by drunk drivers. Just in case anybody's here and you think that going out and drinking with your friends and smoking dope and partying, that it's cool, that there are many more people that are here that they have watched their loved ones and those that they care for. Their lives have been greatly affected in horrible, terrible ways because of alcohol and drugs. Just in case anybody here has a sassy attitude about drinking or drugs, you go Monday nights to the most excellent way, and you talk with Dan and Linda Janczyk, and they'll tell you, As they've been faithful to minister to those who have addictions, the love of Jesus Christ, and the freedom that's found in Jesus Christ, that they'll tell you that they have heard and seen firsthand what it does to people's lives. You can go and talk to the people themselves, that they will also tell you how alcohol And drugs have ruined families and marriages. And they are being set free in Jesus Christ and receiving his forgiveness and restoration and mercy and strength. And he is working in their lives. And there is hope. I know I'm being heavy. You might be saying, "Woo, you're kind of being heavy. I should have stayed home and watched the game. I do have convictions. And I'll tell you why. Because in 25 years of being a pastor, I've heard the stories. I've seen the lives ruined. I've officiated funerals for families of loved ones that they lost somebody because of alcohol. I've had people sit at my table and eat with me and my family that are not here because they lost their lives because of alcohol and what had happened. I look into families' eyes and see the pain that is there, the endless sorrow and grief. So just in case any of us think that, well, it's cool, it's, it's all right, go out and party and drink, it is a destroyer. And the Bible warns against it. And I want to encourage you to turn to the Lord and be free from those things. And it is a loving father that says, don't get weighed down with carousing, with drunkenness. Don't be weighed down with the cares of this life. It means that you're being pulled in different directions. Now, I want to take you back to Luke chapter 8. Remember the parable of the sower. That Jesus tells the story that the sower went out to sow seeds and he threw it on rocky ground. And as the plant came up, so did the thorns come out and it choked out the plant. There was no fruit that was there because of the choking out of that plant. And Jesus explaining the parable said the seed is the word of God and the soil is our hearts. And then as it is sown into our hearts, what happens is that it ends up getting choked out if we're not careful choked out, as Jesus said, by the pleasures of life and then the cares of this life. Now, here's the thing. All of us have cares of life, don't we? Every single one of us. And the cares of life aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves. We have jobs. We have businesses. We have kids to raise. We got grandkids. We got bills to pay. We have Things that we enjoy doing. We got kids that are in sports, you know, they got activities. And what happens is, if we're not careful, is it begins to pull us in so many different directions. And what ends up happening is it begins to choke out our spiritual life and we become dull spiritually. The cares of this world can choke out or taking heed. We have worries, we have anxieties that come into our lives and it weighs us down we are to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. The challenges that come, that take up so much time. Don't let these things bring dullness to your spiritual life. And as verse 34 again, that day come upon you unexpectedly, suddenly. And I want to read to you again. I know I've made reference to this as we've gone through the Olivet Discourse. But I want to just read it once again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. As Paul's writing about the day of the Lord, that he says this. That concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord was the day of the Lord. That is that period of time that starts The tribulation period, seven years of tribulation, then includes the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of Daniel's 70th week or that seven-year period, and then also includes the millennium reign of Jesus Christ. But when it begins, you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Underline that. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light, sons of the day. We're not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Non-believers, the day of the Lord will come upon them unexpectedly. Your children of the day, not of the night. Paul being consistent in what our Lord says. And then let's look at verse 35 again. For he will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth, not just Jerusalem, not just Israel, but the whole earth, and that term is used as a reference, those who dwell on the face of the earth, a reference to non-believers. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Jesus writing that letter to the church of Philadelphia, in those seven letters to the seven churches. He gives a very wonderful promise, a promise of comfort. He said in verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, What he's telling us here, isn't it? In the text that we're reading today in Luke chapter 21. He's telling us to watch, to take heed, to persevere. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. This promise given that I will keep you, as the Greek reads, out of and away from the hour of trial Temptation, the King James says, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell on the earth. There's only one time that there's tribulation, temptation, trial that comes upon all the earth. That's the tribulation period. And the promise is given that he will keep us out of and away from that hour. Not that he's going to keep us through that hour. So Jesus giving this warning because this day, the day of the Lord, which speaks of sudden destruction You know, time of night, time of darkness is going to be like a snare, like a trap that gets sprung. Remember that when Jesus told those disciples concerning the temple, not one stone is going to be left upon another. They were shocked and stunned. It seemed so secure. How could this happen? And if we think that we are secure because of our resources, because of our careers, because of our togetherness, because of our own strength, because of our own intellect, whatever it might be, those things will not bring lasting security. Only Jesus Christ will bring us lasting security, the hope of salvation the hope of heaven as we put our faith and trust in him. And those who dwell on the earth has the meaning dwell there. It means that you're comfortable. You're settled with the world, comfortable with this world. That day is going to come upon them as a trap. And by the way, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, that Paul writes that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Again, that word dwell has the meaning of being comfortable. We as Christians, Christ dwells in our hearts. Is he comfortable in your heart? We will go home, most of us, after service sometime today. And when you go home, you want to be comfortable in your home, don't you? Guys, you have an easy chair. You're able to watch TV or the ball game or an easy chair to read in. We want to be comfortable in our homes. Was Christ comfortable in your hearts? That's a question I need to ask myself Can he kick back in the easy chair of my heart and be comfortable there? Or are there things on the walls of my heart that grieve him? That's an abomination to him. And I pray, Lord, because I know that our hearts are desperately wicked, as the scripture says. And I pray not only for a clean heart, but Lord, work in me a pure heart that Christ might dwell in my heart. I want you to be comfortable there. I want you to be able to sit back in the easy chair of my heart and be comfortable, not grieve because of what's in my heart. We have to be honest. Are we comfortable in the kingdom and living for Christ or are you more comfortable living for the world? And if you are, you're going to get weighed down with the world and worldly pleasures And here, as Jesus gives that warning upon them, it will be a snare. It's going to happen. Don't be weighed down. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 24 in the last days, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved, as Luke records here as verse 36. He says, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. All these signs that mark the end of the age, and now Jesus gives us a message as he ends this teaching of hope that we can escape all these things that will come to pass all these signs that he's been talking about the birth pangs the, the day for when they say peace and safety then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape they shall not escape But the word given to you and to me, Jesus says, watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass is going to happen. The final exhortation, the day of the Lord is going to come upon the unbelievers unexpectedly as a snare on those who dwell on the earth. Therefore, you must watch and pray always. There is... An opportunity to escape, that we be counted worthy to escape, which means out of all these things that he's been talking about, and to stand before you, the Son of Man. Now, how is it that we're counted worthy? Sometimes people read that and they think, I got to work for it. I got to strive for it. I got to earn it. I got to pray more. I got to be a good person, a good Christian. There's only one way to be worthy, and that is coming to Jesus Christ. You see, when he says that, pray that you be counted worthy, it has the meaning of to have the strength to just endure because this world weighs on us and it causes us to be weak spiritually. And there's only one way to be counted worthy to our Lord Jesus Christ justified. And that is coming to him in faith. It's not in what we do. not trying to earn our salvation. It's in what he did. Because in a few hours from this teaching, Jesus will be arrested. He will go through a series of trials. He will be beaten beyond recognition. And then he's going to be pinned to Calvary's cross. And on that cross, he cries out, it is finished. Because I've done the work and I've paid the price. And we who come to him in faith, recognizing our need to be forgiven, that we are sinners, And that he came to take care of the sin problem. And he's the son of God who rose from the grave. And he is alive. We are counted worthy as we surrender our lives to him. Paul again writing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 8 and 9. Let us who are of the day be sober. Putting on the breastplate of faith and love. The breastplate of faith. Faith in him and loving the Lord. And as the helmet the hope of salvation. Hope in the New Testament doesn't mean, oh, I hope I have salvation as I put my faith in the Lord as I love him. We have the hope of salvation. That's expectancy. It's going to happen. No doubt about it. We have the helmet of salvation, the hope of salvation for God to not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is an expectancy and hope in Verse 36. And as I mentioned last week, for those of you who are new to end-time prophecy and learning these things, because there's a lot of people that are brand new to it and it's a lot that we've gone over and perhaps they've gone to a church or raised in a church that never talked about the end times or the return of the Lord or maybe you never... You're new to Bible reading and getting to know the scriptures, what the scriptures has to say. But when we talk about the return of the Lord, there's two distinct events that take place. There is the rapture of the church that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That he says that we who are alive and remain shall be caught up as a sudden taken together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. In other words, there's going to be a generation of Christians that when there is the trump of God, the voice of an archangel, that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in the twinkling of an eye, they were going to be caught up is what that word means, snatched up to meet the Lord in the air. And then there is the second event called the second coming of Jesus Christ, that we know takes place at the end of that seven-year period called the tribulation period, more formally known as Daniel's 70th week, that we're going to come back with him that the armies of God in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation with white linens are coming back with him riding on white horses. So the rapture of the church is when he comes for his church, the second coming of Jesus Christ, when he touches down on the Mount of Olives and he physically, literally returns to this earth, he will judge the nations, establish his kingdom, restore the nation of Israel. He comes with his church. So the rapture is that he comes for his church, will meet the Lord in the air, will be snatched up, and then there is the second coming when he comes with this church. That's you and I. What a great hope that we have. What a future that we have. And the rapture, I believe, Scripture tells us, is signless. In other words, we have already seen that Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, I come when you are least expected. In an hour that you do not know. That is why Jesus said in the chapter, be the wise and faithful servant that's looking for the master's return. We call it the imminent return of Jesus. We're gonna be taken out of and away from the hour of trial that shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. We saw in Luke's gospel that Jesus, as he was talking right before he got to Jerusalem for the Passover, that he would say to those religious leaders that the coming of the Son of Man is like in the days of Noah and the days of Lot. They're given to marriage and, and marrying and buying and selling. And they didn't know that judgment was going to come upon them. And we know that those who lived in Noah's day, that they watched Noah for 120 years, build that ark. He was a preacher of righteousness. And Noah said that judgment's going to come. And they didn't believe it. Till finally it started raining. And they all were destroyed in that flood. The days of Lot, as the angels came to get Lot and his family out of Sodom. Before fire and brimstone fell. And it's interesting, when you read the book of Genesis, that it says that Lot And his family lingered. They couldn't believe judgment's going to come. What do you mean judgment's going to come? This place is a place that's culturally stimulating. It's economically prosperous. They were buying and selling. This is the happening place. What do you mean judgment's going to come? And it was the angel that said to Lot and his family, quit lingering. I've got to get you out before I can do anything to this city. And I think that that's significant because... The Lord's going to take you and I out of this world before he pours out his wrath on a Christ rejected world. He's going to take it to be with himself in heaven. And then we're going to come back with him in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I believe that the the imminency of the return of the Lord is all over the New Testament. I know that there are those who have a view which is called the mid-tribulation rapture that halfway through the... Tribulation that will be raptured, or two-thirds of the way, the pre-wrath, or at the end of the tribulation, the post-tribulation rapture. And I know that they love the Lord and they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're not saved because we have the right position on the rapture. But in my study of the scriptures, I just see the doctrine of imminent return all over the New Testament. I see that Paul put it before the Christians and the New Testament writers, and that's what I'm going to do. There have been those who have emailed me or called and asked me questions. Well, the pre-tribulation rapture was a position that only came up in the 1800s. Margaret MacDonald and John Darby and brought that position. Margaret MacDonald had a vision that was the vision that brought forth the pre-tribulation doctrine. And John Darby was the one that popularized it and was the first dispensationalist and on and on. Well, I'll tell you what I've read. That John Darby was talking about God's plan for the church and God's plan for Israel years before Margaret McDonald had that vision. Also know this that John Nelson Darby was extremely, extremely intelligent. This was a guy who translated the Hebrew Old Testament and Greek Old Testament or the Greek New Testament comparing manuscripts and codices. He translated the Bible himself in French and in German and in English. He translated the New Testament in seven languages. That's quite an undertaking. People will say, well, the pre-tribulation rapture, you know, is not historic church doctrine. And you know what my initial response to that is? Is so what? So what? The history of the church is a mess. Justification by faith was not historic church doctrine for centuries until Martin Luther came along with the Reformation. You see, what you and I are to determine, is it biblical doctrine? And the imminent return of Jesus is very clear, taught by Jesus, Paul, the New Testament writers. Paul would write in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, wait for his son in heaven. Wait for him. It has the, the meaning, that word wait. Any of us that are parents, you're waiting for your children to come home at night. You're waiting for them to come home. Paul says, wait for his son. To Titus in chapter 2, verse 13 We should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. Why? Looking for the blessed hope. That's the rapture and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. James, he writes, the Lord's coming is at hand. You know, many verses that I could spend time telling you, showing you the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And the thing is, forget about John Darby and Margaret MacDonald. Just read your Bible. And the last words of Jesus that we have in the last chapter of the Bible is, Come quickly. I come quickly. Behold, know it, understand this, that I come quickly, Maranatha. And those who say that the imminent return of Jesus was not taught in church history until 1880, that's not true either. That the early church, the Diachi, written in 100 to 120 A.D., told the Christians to be ready, for you do not know the hour that your Lord comes. Early church leaders, the Epistle of Clement, written in 96 A.D., wrote on the imminent return. In his second epistle, did the same thing. The Epistle of Barnabas wrote on the imminent return of Jesus Christ. We know that Latimer in the 1400s Preach the imminent return of Jesus Christ. John Wesley did, said, Expect him every hour. The point is, the New Testament doctrine is one of imminent, believed and taught by the apostles passed through the ages. And I like what Dr. Mark Hitchcock says in his book. He says that I take imminency so serious that when I go out to eat, I order my dessert first before my meal. And I like that mindset. Listen, it's given to us to watch. Don't get way down with this world. We are a generation of Christians that are living closer to the return of the Lord, obviously, than any other generation. We see things going on all around us, the budding of the fig tree, the budding of the other trees, the nations. We see the pieces of the puzzle coming together. Be watching. Don't get weighed down with this world. Don't fall asleep spiritually. Know that Jesus Christ is coming back. We don't know the day or the hour. We are living in very perilous times, but as Christians, we are living in very exciting times as well. A time for you to be a light and to give the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ came the first time to die for you because of his love for you. And he is going to come back. And as people see things unraveling all around them, whatever it may be, that we have a message of hope. A message of salvation. A message of God's love that was demonstrated for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Keep your eyes on him. Don't keep your eyes on this world. We are in the world. Listen, I know we got things to do. We got the daily life that we have to live but keep your eyes on the things above, as Paul said, not on the things of this world. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these encouraging words, exhortation and warning given to us. And you do warn us because you don't want us to be weighed down and dull of heart, but, Lord, to be watching, to be waiting. So I thank you for these words of Jesus recorded for all eternity knowing that what we've talked about over the last few weeks, that it will come to pass. Father, I thank you for your love. Demonstrate it by sending your Son. Jesus' love demonstrated that while we were yet sinners, he freely went to the cross and died for us. And I pray if there's anybody that's here this morning, you're here listening on live stream, or you're listening to this message later on the radio, Or maybe downloading it, maybe a CD somebody gave to you, maybe you're here in this place this morning that you've never given your life and your heart to Jesus Christ. He's your security, He is your hope and your future, your salvation. It is not found anywhere else, it's not found in anyone else, not even yourself. That you would come in faith is what I pray. Believing that you need to be forgiven. The greatest need of any man or any woman. To quit going the direction that you're going and turn to Jesus for salvation. To cry upon him. You might think everything's good in my life. But if you don't have Jesus, it's not. He desires to make you a new person. To forgive you. To bring you into right relationship with the Father. To bring you ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment in your heart and in your soul. Because over time what will happen is you will feel empty if you don't have Jesus. And you will be lost eternally. He is your salvation. Will you give your life to him? That's the most important decision that you will ever make in your life. Is surrendering to him and coming in faith. Will you do that? Just so if we got a minute here. And if that's you, today is the day of salvation. That if you don't know if you're right with God or have that relationship with God through Jesus, will you pray in your heart this, that Jesus, I come to you and ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I believe you went to the cross because you loved me. And I ask that you would forgive me. And I know that you're alive, knocking on the door of my heart. And I ask that you would sit upon the throne of my life is my personal Lord and Savior. And I want to know you and walk with you, be surrendered to you every day. And I thank you for this new beginning. And I thank you for your righteousness being imputed to me that I can be a part of the family of God. In Jesus' name. And listen, as we're being respectful, if you prayed that prayer, will you do me a favor, put your hand up, at least in this sanctuary, anybody at all, God bless you. God bless you. I see you. Anybody else? Don't be afraid. So raising your hand doesn't save you. You're just acknowledging I've made a decision for Christ. Anybody else that I can see? And, Lord, there may be others. And, Father, that I thank you for the decisions that have been made for you. Lord, that they would know that as believers Christ dwells in our hearts. And I pray that they would leave this place rejoicing in salvation and forgiveness. I pray that you would, Lord, draw them to yourself every single day, that they would grow in the love and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And for all of us, as we leave this place, that we would just leave knowing that our security is in you, to keep our eyes on you and watch. To strengthen us every single day, to take heed spiritually. Bless everyone here now as we go our way. We thank you for this morning, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.